Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Thank you. I had a great week. All right, let's go to the book of Mark. See? That's how great it is. Now, we're in a series in uh, the book of Mark just by way of review. Let's fire up the slide, Sarah. Boom, here we go. The book of Mark divides into three sections. They are geographically focused. The first section is in Galilee, and that goes to chapter 8. And the question is, who is Jesus? The disciples finally admit that Jesus is the Messiah in chapter 8. And then Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And the question in Act 2 is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Um, Once he arrives in Jerusalem, then the big question is, well, how does Jesus become king? And so for those of us who are, you know, if you've been a Sunday school person for a while, um, or a Sunday person for a while, we know how the story ends. But it's tough to overstate how discombobulating the message of Jesus was to, its, to his original audience, particularly to the disciples. And so Mark spends a lot of time showing how the disciples take a lot of time to really understand what it is that Jesus is up to. He uses this technique, Sarah, that is called the sandwich technique, of, of which we are fans. Um, the sandwich technique is where he brackets He'll, he'll use two similar stories or quotes to bracket a whole section of material, and those brackets actually explain the material in the middle. So the first sandwich is in Mark 4 when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, hey, the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, but to those on the outside I speak in parables, so they will, not, they will hear but not perceive, they will see but not understand. And then the irony is that Throughout Mark 4 through 8, we meet all of these outsider characters who are the ones who actually see and perceive Jesus rightly, and it's the disciples who are the ones who are missing Jesus all over the place. So much so that at chapter 8, the second part of the sandwich is Jesus looking at his followers saying, do you not see and perceive? Do you not hear and understand? And so the, the irony is that the disciples who should have been insiders are missing the beauty of Jesus, and the outsider characters all throughout the Gospel of Mark are the ones who are actually seeing and perceiving rightly. This, of course, is our review. The second sandwich is a he- series, what's well, healings of two blind men. The first one is in chapter 8. It's a guy that requires, like, spit on the eye and two tries. And then there's a healing that we're going to look at today in chapter 10. Those healings bracket a section of material where three times Jesus explains he's going to die, and three times the disciples miss it completely. The first time Peter rebukes Jesus for that. The second time we looked at last week with Kevin, where uh, the disciples argue about who's the greatest. And then today, shockingly, they will miss it again. So the point is that the blind men frame how blind the disciples are to the aims of Jesus makes sense so far. All of this is review. Great. Let's fire up our text for today, Sarah. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. Again, so they're on the way. With Jesus leading the way, 
which is, which is very symbolic because the disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing there. So Jesus, the picture is almost Jesus dragging them with him to go up to Jerusalem. And the disciples were astonished. Now, astonished here isn't a positive word. <laughs> they are, they're full of dread, they're full of anxiety, and they're just kind of amazed at this Jesus who says he's going there to die. And he says it with this like factual resignation, and yet they believe he's the Messiah. Those things just don't go together. Those who were with him were also afraid. And afraid in the Gospel of Mark is usually predictive of the wrong response to what Jesus is doing. Again, he took the 12, third time, and told them what was going to happen to him. And it, this is the most explicit he gets. We are going to go up to Jerusalem, guys. The Son of Man, reference from Daniel 7, that Jesus uses to describe his, himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles, which is the Romans, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Pretty explicit, correct? Not a lot to argue with. Then, <laughs> James and John, the sons of their father Zebedee, kind of caught up with Jesus ahead of the other disciples. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, parents... Suppose your child comes to you with that question. Are you guarded automatically? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus, however, invites them to lay whatever their agenda is before him. So he asks this question, and keep this phrase, please keep this phrase in mind. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. This is the, this is the driving question for the next couple of stories. What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Oh, oh, they're so awesome. And I'm so glad we're not like them at all. So what they've done is they've taken Jesus's words and they're like, yeah, 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 we get the suffering part, but when the glory comes, right, 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 can we just sit at the right and left hand? Now, in, in Greco-Roman society, right and left of the host is kind of, those are the positions of honor. You know, if you have like, if you've gone to a wedding, of course, you have the honor table, or in the old days, kings would be seated above everybody else. I mean, seating arrangements mattered. And so they are asking for the places of prestige. It's another way of them saying, who's the greatest? We are. And Jesus, oh, sweet Jesus, <laughs> you don't know what you're asking. I love that. Jesus has said similar things to myself. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink, which is a reference to the cup of wrath? And can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptism, baptized with, excuse me? Two references to his coming suffering. And these dorks, yeah, we can, sure, no problem. Oh. I mean, I love, and we had a question about this a couple weeks ago. Why did Jesus choose these guys? And the great answer is because these guys are us. It takes us this long to actually understand that there is glory, but the glory is only found in and through the cross. That's where the vindication is. It's not the other way around. So they said, we can. Sure, 
Jesus said to them, all right, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. In other words, you will suffer. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Who sits at his right and left when he comes into his glory? When Jesus comes into his glory, who sits at his right and left? What? Oh, I love Dave. I love it. But I'm going to disagree. I'm sorry. No, I love that. Exactly. Seated at the right hand of the Father. You're right and tragically wrong. <laughs> no. No. All right. I won't do any more questions. The two thieves, the two rebels, when Jesus comes into his glory, is on the cross. That's the, that's the tragic irony. And so who's on his right and left? Criminals. So yeah, the disciples will suffer. And yeah, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, you bet. But in another sense, when he came into his glory fully, he was seated among the worst of us. I just find that so interesting. Now, when the 10 other disciples or apostles heard this, they became indignant. Now, why do you think they were mad? They wanted those seats. Exactly. They weren't mad because how could you ask Jesus this? It was more like, well, why didn't we think of that? They became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together. This is the third time this has happened. He says he's going to suffer. They miss it. So then he has to teach them about the nature of discipleship. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, so he's talking about the Romans, lord it over them. So lord their authority over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And then this is one of the most powerful lines in the book. Not so with you. This is how the Gentiles exercise power. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your. And whoever wants to be first must be what? Slave of all. Now just stop. All the good Christian people in our little community here say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we've heard this before, and we're like, yeah, of course. And none of us believe this. Not one of us actually believe this is what greatness looks like. Not one of us. Right? So I want to just spend a little time talking about how it is that Jesus redefines greatness and power in his kingdom. Because slaves, now we think of, of slavery in very modern terms, and it is horrific, in an honor and shame culture, to be a slave meant you had no social honor. You had no prestige. You had no privilege. You had no rights, and you were entitled to nothing. Okay? So Jesus is saying, if you want to know what greatness looks like in my kingdom, think of the person with no social honor, and that's greatness. Think of the person that's given up all their rights and does not live a life of entitlement. That's greatness in my kingdom. Think about how the Gentiles use their power, right, to oppress, to coerce, to threaten, to intimidate, to gain more power. 
not so with you. So one of the, the language we use is that we talk about power over versus power under. Power over is the Gentile power, the Roman power. It's coercion and the threat of violence. It can be manipulation. Right? We're all familiar with power over when you have to do something you don't want to do. Power under is the power of assuming a lower social status than somebody else and seeking their interests before your own. So power under is the power of influence, the power of example, the power of wisdom. It's not the power of coercion, the threat of violence, or manipulation. Power under is what it is that Jesus does so beautifully. He has, and he's tell, he tells Pilate this. Pilate's like, hey, Dave, just so you know, I could call down 12 legions of angels, which is 72,000 angels, and whenever we see one in the New Testament, everyone's afraid. So imagine 72,000 angels showing up. But I'm not going to do that. If my followers were of this world, they would fight. That's the distinguishing characteristic of the kingdoms of the world. But for him, and the kingdom that he's inaugurating, the distinguishing characteristic is exactly the, exactly the impulse not to fight and not to use power over. Are you with me? And the reason Jesus gives for this, why it is that we're to imitate him in this way, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And ransom is this really cool word that refers to something being sold off to pay a debt and then somebody of means coming and buying it back and setting it free. It's an image that we get from Isaiah 53. So this is one of the places where Jesus actually says, hey, here's why I've come, to ransom humanity out of its debt and to set them free. And that is the same orientation you, my followers, are to have as you follow me. With me so far? Sure. Then we meet the blind guy. They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man who has no social honor, Bartimaeus. Now, any time you see the prefix B-A-R, that's son of. So Jesus was Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. This is Bartimaeus, which, you know, Mark helpfully translates, son of Timaeus. He was sitting by the roadside begging when he heard, again, there's that verb of perception, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, the good people around Jesus said, shut up. They rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. He throws his cloak aside. Now, you, we think that the cloak would have been the place where people would have been throwing money. So he kind of imitates the early disciples and they're leaving everything to go and run to Jesus. And then Jesus asks the question again, what do you want me to do for you? Remember he asked the question of the disciples. We want the seats of honor. Here's the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to what? Now, as we've been tracking through Mark, verbs of perception are always applied to everyone but the disciples. So it's 
the people outside who see and hear and perceive and understand. It's disciples who are blinded by other things. So here's a man, when Jesus asks the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? We want the positions of greatness. When Jesus asks the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. So Bartimaeus is who the disciples should be, but aren't. Are you with me? And again, it's a gut punch in the first century because a blind man begging is the lowest of the low. So Mark isn't just putting these random stories together. He's got a huge theological agenda saying, if you want to respond rightly to the Messiah, questing for power and privilege and status is the wrong way to go about it. And instead, here's this person who simply has nothing but his bare request, and God grants it. Are you with me so far? Fantastic. Jesus, in some ways, if this is sounding familiar, because Jesus makes the same point three times. And we looked at these texts, I think, last year. They're so important, they're worth a revisit, because these texts are meant to refurbish our imagination about how we think about ourselves, discipleship, church, and leadership. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. Peter rebukes him. Jesus says, all right, well, everyone should take up their cross and follow me. The cross, as we saw, isn't what gets us into heaven. It's the orientation out of which we live. Second time, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. They argue about who's the greatest. Jesus brings in a little child, contrasts the child to the rich man, and says, that is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. And just because they did not get the point, I'm going to die again great, which one of us can sit at the seats of honor? If you want to talk about honor, you must become a slave and have no honor at all because the Son of Man, who is due all the rights and privileges of being God's anointed, set those aside and became a ransom for many. So this next little section is a lot of slides. And the goal of it is to be very critical of the worst parts of the American church. And I feel really good being critical of the worst parts of the American church because I've done them. I've been guilty of them. The goal is not to think, oh yeah, those people over there or that leader over there, all of those people suck. The goal instead is to, is to think about the dynamics that are present in the way American Christians conceive of followership of Jesus and to land that here. If you're thinking about other people while we go through this, you're doing it wrong. The goal is for us to reflect. And I, I did something similar, I think a year ago, and I tweaked it a little bit, but this is still so freaking convicting for me. So how do we see ourselves? This is what I was told. I'm an individual with an inalienable bill of rights and constitutional freedoms, I'm an American citizen, promised upward mobility and a shot at the American dream if I just work hard and believe in myself. I'm engaged in a culture war that can only be won through the exercise of political power against my political opponents who are ruining our country. Does that sound familiar? That's my identity in very kind of earthly terms. My cruciform identity this Jesus-shaped identity. I'm a member of a cross-shaped kingdom following a cross-shaped king. In my baptism, I identify myself with the death of Jesus, and I take up my cross as a way of life. 
forsaking status-seeking and self-preservation, self-aggrandizement and upward mobility, surrendering my power and privilege and my right to comfort and safety, embracing self-giving love and self-expenditure instead of exploiting my rights and privileges for my own gain, so that I may imitate Christ by returning good for evil, blessing my enemies, praying for those who persecute me, refusing to retaliate, promoting God's shalom and flourishing for the sake of others. So how are we doing on that one? And not anybody else, just us. So how do we think of ourselves? And maybe it's a blend of both. How do we think of churches? <laughs> and I'm sorry. But very often churches, and we'd never say this, but we're personality-driven dispensers of religious goods and services in competition with each other for market share. And I don't mean those churches out there. I mean how I understand church. And we use American measures of success to define worth and status. The ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Instead, we are to be cross-shaped communities who participate in God's renewing work in the world, offering hospitality and welcome to the outcast and marginalized, forsaking the dynamics of growth for its own sake, success for its own sake, efficiency for its own sake, and embracing communal practices like laments, generosity, confession, table fellowship, justice, worship, faithfulness for the sake of the world. How are we doing? This one bugs the living daylights out of me. How do we think about leadership? So I got this list from biblicalleadership.com. All right? Listen, any book that says biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, or biblical leadership, flee. Okay, I'm serious. There is no such definitions. All right, but, but here's somebody who's trying. The effective leader must be strategic. And this occurs when individuals and teams think, act, and influence in ways that promote the sustainable, competitive advantage of the organization. And people lead churches this way. I have. Leaders affect change, brothers and sisters. Effective leaders are concerned with accomplishing the tasks of an organization and fulfilling its mission and making the vision a reality. Notice the people aren't mentioned in that. The people of the organization aren't even talked about. Effective leaders view change as a friend. Why? Because it's a necessary component. This is biblical leadership. A necessary component to a winning strategy to enhance the competitive advantage of the organization. Cool. Relationship building is a primary what? <laughs> Making a priority of relationship building will impact the leader's daily calendar. Oh, bummer. But the rewards are great as organizational goals get realized more efficiently and individuals grow more influentially, thus incre increasing the effectiveness of the organization. So don't build relationships just because your people are worth it and interesting. Build relationships because it makes your organization more effective. Biblicalleadership.com. More than ever today, the effective leader is a visionary. And then they quote this verse from Proverbs that has nothing to do with a business plan. If you read the whole <laughs> verse, 
the vision is of God. Where there is no vision of God, the people perish. Ah, oh, I have used that verse to come up with visions. Oh, adaptability marks the attitude of the effective leader. And again, I'm not taking shots at anyone out there. This is us. This is the imagination that has held us captive that these three instances of Jesus like totally rebuke. Effective leaders never quit, okay? Except when they're crucified. The effective leader exhibits transformational qualities. Now, what leader can live all of that? Can you think of one person outside of Jesus of Nazareth who could even pull that off? I mean, even our great business leaders, we all hear about the shadow side of their leadership. And then number eight, servanthood is an example of the heart and mind that Jesus exemplified. So after all of the other things, number eight is, oh yeah, be a servant. Biblicalleadership.com. Now maybe they've changed it since I last saw that, but I was just like, that's perfect. I mean, when I, was a, when I was a megachurch pastor, everyone said, you've got to read business books. And hallelujah for business books. Great, there's wisdom in business books. Hallelujah. But the assumption was the pastor is a CEO. The church is an organization that has organizational goals. You have to have a vision and everyone has to be aligned. Instead, all right, five more minutes and then we'll do questions or whatever you want to talk about. Think about what's considered normal in American Christianity. And think about the words of Jesus. All right, so this is normal. The desire to increase in prestige and status, influence, and prominence. Right, we have celebrities. Great. What's normal is seeing people either as a help or a hindrance to the organization's mission. I used to be told there are people who, like the, the organization is a bus. And you've got to make sure people are in the right seats on the bus. And there's wisdom in that. Make sure people are operating in their giftedness. But the unwritten assumption was if they don't fit in the bus, get rid of them. Or, according to one very famous pastor, run them over. There's an emphasis on efficiency. How efficient is relationship building? How efficient is pastoring and friendship? It's not. And effective? What does effective mean? That we have more people than we did last year? And it doesn't matter if those people are more loving, joyful, peaceful, kind. An uncritical focus on growth. Hallelujah. Do, do we want to grow? Of course. But we don't want to grow just one-dimensionally. We want to grow deeper. Platform-seeking and self-promotion. All of this is just considered normal. And again, no shots taken except at myself. And what we've swallowed as normal so we're image conscious, so I can't admit weakness, vulnerability. We use power to achieve personal ends and ambitions rather than seeking the best for others. We withdraw from communal life. And then I'm just going to slam through this very quickly. Next. <laughs> One more. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, seeing other similar organizations as competition. Dumbest thing ever. Next. Cruciform leadership an unrelenting commitment to the delivery of love and grace into the lives of others. That sounds more like a church. The Determination to live authentically and relate honestly. 
unafraid to share weaknesses, inadequacies, and failures. Man. Power surrendering instead of power seeking, focused on the flourishing of those under their care, not their own dreams and plans. Yikes. Forsaking control, power over in order to embrace power under. Using rights and privileges to elevate others. So how are we doing? I feel indicted by that list, personally. My imagination is exposed as shrunken. My evaluation of churches comes from, did I like it? Which is the same question we ask, we ask about movies. And again, all I want to do is hold up an alternative vision that Jesus seems to indicate is really important. And that I need to be dramatically reconfigured in the way that I approach what this is and how it works. Questions? Anything you want to talk about? <laughs> Kevin said, how was your week? It was a great week. It's such a difficult thing to do to balance that. I, I, I feel like I, well, actually, let me back up. First, let me say thank you for putting words around this topic. I've kind of like felt this for such a long time. We were part of a church. Nope, we're not talking about other churches. Oh, my bad. Yep. Yes, thank you. Because um, this point, isn't the best one, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the goal isn't to say, point, oh, how great are we? Yeah, yeah. Point the being, is, yeah. Um, the, ba the, the tension between uh, getting something accomplished and just being with people yeah and because you can't uh a relationship isn't a checklist that kind of thing totally. you know um uh, i completely lost it anyhow i just love the words around that but it, but it's difficult how do you balance that it's like you, you you can't wake up every day and be like okay what did you accomplish today uh yeah in 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 service of yeah the servanthood life that kind of thing you know yeah, so I would, I would not put, I would, I would uh, reconfigure the poles that you have there between efficiency and like relational. One of the things that we try to do and that healthy organizations do is that you have to have people who are get or done people. That guy that handed you the microphone, that's a get or done guy. So he's in here doing the chairs obsessively and it's wonderful. I come and watch him. He's, uh, do you pray over him? No, you just want to make sure they're aligned so that people with wide hips have room. Thank you, Kevin. You're welcome. On behalf of the wide hip ones. Kevin's a get or dumb person. Tim Timmons, Susie Lynn, those are relational people. Right, so to some degree, a healthy community, this is a communal effort, has people who do get all kinds of things accomplished, and when I'm with them, I know that they're, they're on task. And there are other people when I'm with them who task what? My task today is a two-hour lunch with you. And that, so it's not just something we do by ourselves. That's one of the things I want to reconfigure is, no, no, no. This is a communal effort, and hallelujah for the get-or-done types. We need those people. And hallelujah for the people that literally could just sit with someone for hours and be fully present. Make sense? 
And in our jobs and roles in the world, sometimes we have to just get her done. But if we're going to claim biblical leadership, that's what I want to call into question. Right? Of course, how you manage your own life, how you manage all these things. I just want us to feel the tension of what Jesus is presenting and not just kind of finagle our way out of it with disclaimers. So thank you for bringing all of that up. Anything else you want to talk about? Yes, sir. Um, how, does the, how does that look like on a daily basis, like for at the beginning of the day? Because uh, I'm not one. When I listen to the message today, I'm like, wow, I'm not really one to be prone to follow God. And so how does that look? What's a, how do you, like, I mean, I know you could say you could get on your knees or whatever, but how do you orient orient yourself oh. to follow Christ like that. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I can only tell you what works for me because I'm, I am tragically forgetful. First, it's not something you do by yourself. It's something we do together. So there are corporate disciplines that we practice that wake us up to the God who's all around us all the time outside of these walls. For me, the Lord's praying the Lord's Prayer is the most centering thing I do. Um, that little bit in Matthew 6, and just going, okay, my father, and for some, father's hard, so my parent, how have you parented me? I want to be a part of your kingdom coming today. And I don't do this always, but I, I will write little post-it notes that says, are you awake? Because I just kind of sleepwalk through life. You know what I mean? And the image I have is there are burning bushes all around me, but I'm just looking at my phone too much, you know? And so, so the, one of the things that I have to do is disrupt what's normal and automatic. So there are all kinds of ways I can do that by listening to something different in the car, by skipping a meal and praying during that time, by having a text that's just maybe one verse that I'm just mulling on, or making myself notes different places. Anything you guys would add to that? And yeah, let's not do just the Christian like, hey, make sure you have an hour in the morning with God, because that's not, for some of us, that's just not terribly realistic. Anything you'd add to that? No, that was a pretty great list. All right. Now, when you hear that, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think, I think some of that sounds like Christianese, you know? Totally. You know, but... Uh, do you, let me ask yeah. you this. Do you, are you married? Yeah. Okay. Do you have to remember that you're married? Uh, I suppose sometimes. Yes! <laughs> yes, you do, yes! Thank yeah. you for being honest. And all the husbands said yes! And what happens? I, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I just got excited. I know. I know. The big, scary, bald man. I know. I know. I know. Oh, I know. I know. It's like a loud Olive Garden breadstick is what's up here. <laughs> totally understand that. I know. I'm sorry. I think this little one speaks for a lot of us right now. What happens when you forget? How do you remember? 
I don't mean to put you on the spot, but this I think is really important. Because the relational dynamic that you have with your spouse, and sometimes forgetting and sometimes remembering, is exactly the same dynamic I think God's after. I think, I think for me personally, what reminds me the most is sometimes when I see how difficult of a person I am, and I'm like, whoa, I have someone that's willing to uh, I love put you. up with that. Yes. <laughs> and that reminds me that I'm like, whoa, like, yes. I, I'm a mess, and, I ha and God has given me somebody. Right. But who gave it? God. So just enumerating even, like, like one of my most important, sorry for the Christianese, is I just say thank you a lot all day. I just say thank you. And that wakes me up to things that are going around. But, but would you spend a little time reflecting on the dynamic between you and your sweetie? And I think that's the invitation as you're at work or you're doing other things. What God isn't interested in is you having some like spiritual life that just so richly overflows into everything else. The goal is that your normal life becomes the place where you meet God. That's the goal. And so how do we wake up to the God that's always at work around us? That's the question. Man, well done. Thank you for being so honest. Your wife just clapped. So, hey. The text. Text line. You ready? You got, no. I'm, okay. I'm, this one's good. I'm hearing this. I'm agreeing with it. However, how do we overcome the message? The church continued to pound in our minds that we suck and that we are, no, we are not good. Nothing about us is good, so we need Jesus, which can then lead to self-hatred. For many years, people have been healing from that self-loathing oh, of never so being good, good enough. How can we do both? I spend years thinking how bad I am. I can no longer believe that. How do, re how do I reconcile the cross-shaped life with my personal healing and loving myself again? Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Yeah. Good one. And here comes an answer that isn't going to match how intelligent and sensitive that question is. So we don't do this for the great answers. We do this to honor and to witness the great questions. So this is a very cliche thing I'm about to say, but it's very true. Most of Protestantism begins the Bible, uh, starts the Bible in Genesis 3 rather than in Genesis 1 or 2. So in Genesis 3, human beings fall. Now that doesn't mean there's nothing good about them. They're still made in the image of God. They still build culture and do all sorts of things throughout the text. It does mean, though, that what was normal in the garden doesn't come easily or naturally for us anymore, and that's the idea of just image-bearing in our full humanness. So because we start in Genesis 3 with you're a horrible person and you need Jesus, that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible starts with you're an image-bearer who is called to rule and reign in your full humanity. And that includes all the parts of humanity that some forms of Christianity have deemed sinful. So whether it's sexuality or, or whether it's uh, limitation through disability or whatever, there are loads of areas of humanness that we've never been taught to respect and see as part of what it is to be an image bearer. So the idea isn't that we're as bad as we could be, but we're just not living up to God's original vision for us, and we're both victims and purveyors of that. Are you with me so far? 
So the original vision does not start with, you're a horrible person. Even when Paul says, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the word there is image. And he's not talking about you personally, he's talking about humanity as a whole. Humanity has fallen short of the image of God. And would we all agree that that's true? That we don't, we're not image bearers in the way that God originally intended. So I actually used to operate from the guilt framework, and Jesus comes to pay the guilt price. I don't see that as much in the text anymore. There are some places where, where no question that language is used, but there are other places that use language of adoption or redemption. I came as a ransom for many. And that those places are just as significant as the courtroom picture. And in fact, even the courtroom picture, I think, gets distorted. So how do we reconcile cross-shaped life? I can only answer for me, all right? And please feel free to disagree. I don't think, oh man. Okay, we got a little time. Kevin, we got five minutes. I don't think salvation in the Bible is your soul going to heaven when you die. I think salvation in the Bible is a restoration to image bearing in your full humanness that does lead to life with God forever, but that's not the point of it. The point is the restoration of the image bearing. And part of the work of restoring image bearing is dealing with emotional, spiritual, physical, all the things, all the ways that fallenness is corrupted and infected. And so I don't see salvation as this thing where we hate our bodies and ourselves and our soul is good and that gets jettisoned out of our bodies into heaven. That's called Gnosticism. And that was the earliest heresy of the church. That Jesus could not have lived in human flesh because flesh is gross. And we, modern Protestant, some forms of Christianity, teach that very same thing. So the goal is to escape humanness, not to embrace it. That humanness is bad itself. That's not at all. We were sexual before we were sinful. We were hungry and thirsty before we were sinful. We were fully human before we were sinful. So it's not our humanness that's at issue here. It's our vocation as it displays our humanness that's at issue. Is this making any sense? What did that last sentence mean? That human beings, that I've, I view my life as trying to reach some state of sinning less in moral perfection. And the, the work of Jesus isn't to get us to sin less. The work of Jesus is to rescue us out of the false forms of image bearing so that we might image, we, we might, and this is the, all the Paul language of being transformed into his image. That's the thing. Jesus comes as the fully human one who represents the image of God and the vocation of the image perfectly. And so when I embrace that orientation, I do sin less. But sinning less isn't the goal, it's the byproduct. So if I've been taught that the whole thing that Jesus is dealing with is my sin problem, and my sin problem just means when I don't follow the rules, then it's so easy to get caught up in, okay, well, did I have a good day? Well, yeah, I didn't do this and this. And that's the trap of the Pharisee. The invitation of Jesus is to live a fully human life that brings glory and honor to God. And that doesn't mean escaping our human beingness. It means right in the middle of it, right in the middle of real human life. And if, I know all of this sounds wonderfully theoretical. 
but I'm telling you, for me, it changed everything. It got me into therapy, which was a work to restore and to see blind spots. It got me into spiritual direction. It got me into healthy community. It, real, it made me realize that the goal of the work of Jesus isn't that I sin less, but I, because the human soul isn't made to run on greed. It distorts us and destroys us. And so at some point I came to believe generosity is actually better. The human soul isn't met, meant to be fueled by revenge. I actually have come to believe that being fully human means I forgive, even when it's really, really difficult. Are, are you with me at all on this? So, so I have so much empathy and solidarity with whoever asked that question. I just don't think that package is represented in the Bible. I think there are parts of it that are, but if you read the biblical story from beginning to end, the point isn't and never is how do we get these sinners into heaven? The goal is, God has always designed human beings to be image bearers. How do we restore their image bearing? That includes dealing with the sin problem, but it's so much bigger than that. Whoever wrote that in, if you want to talk more or you want to seek better wisdom, we have loads of better people to talk with. But seriously, that is the most profound question. Thank you, whoever you are, for, for texting that in. All right, what we're going to do so we're going to do something a little different. Great job. My goodness, you guys. It's so good. What we're going to do is we're going to try something a little different. We're going to bring our band up, and we're going to play music only without words. And so I know, like, it's very easy to sort of slip into singing songs that we're familiar with, but we'd rather just sort of provide an atmosphere of reflection and out of that, you can get up, and there'll be prayer people in the back. You can do all of those things. But this first, like, few moments is just going to be instruments only. And so just sit and reflect, if you would. And then you're invited, of course, to move around and to take communion. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, wow! <sighs> Stuff is so good and so challenging for us. We just help, we just pray. Oh, Isaac. Isaac's hugging me. We just pray that you would help us sort through all of these dynamics and how they might look and apply in our lives. And so God, I, I just confess the same questions, the same wrestlings. I confess the guilt of falling so short in a lot of those ways. But Lord, would you open our imaginations to what this could and should look like for us. And would you challenge those parts in our midst that have embraced ideologies rather than what it is the text is really leading us into. And so in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.